Welcome, everybody, to A Story of Us podcast presented by the Anthropology Public Outreach Program at The Ohio State University. Our guest today is PhD candidate Stephen Rue. How are you doing, Stephen? I'm good. How are you doing, Andrew? Very good. Thank you. So our first question is just kind of for you to define the aspects of your research. So could you define the effects of household water insecurity on children's health and well-being? Why is this such an important area of research in the field of medical anthropology? Yeah, sure. So let is water insecurity first, because I think that really needs the most attention before we get into why it's important for children. And you can really think of water insecurity as the condition where access to and benefit from affordable, adequate, reliable, or safe water for health and well-being is either unobtainable or precarious. And this applies largely to a myriad of conditions. This can be water scarcity. This can be water contamination. So, you know, it's not only in situations where there's not enough water, which is very how classically how water insecurity is very much thought of, it's traditional scarcity, but also conditions where water is accessible, but maybe its provision isn't reliable. Maybe the quality is either questionable, unknown, or very much known to be uh, contaminated, have pathogens, really the whole gamut of anything that makes water unusable in any way for health and well-being is water insecurity. And when we think about that in relationship to children, it's really important because children are some of the most vulnerable to the effects of inadequate or unsafe water. And now some of the numbers you often see get cited are that, you know, seven, 800 children die every day from inadequate water and sanitation. And usually this is children under five. That number was very constant for the last three or four years. Unfortunately, now the UN has, uh, UNICEF actually has really just come out with a revised number of that. Now they're saying upwards of a thousand children under five die every day from inadequate water sanitation and hygiene. So it is, it is incredibly detrimental to child health and well-being. And children are so vulnerable because they're in this stage of growth and development and their water needs are constantly in flux, particularly from a young age. And then as you get older and water is just such a fundamental part of life that's very hard to mitigate those effects towards children, to either keep them from being exposed to water that's unsafe or making sure they have enough water to be hydrated, to have good nutrition. So the effects, I mean, we could really go into the, to the nitty gritty of what, the range of effects that how it impact children, but it's really just incredibly essential as children are just some of the most vulnerable to insufficient unsafe water. So my second question here is for you to discuss the research article on this topic that you and your colleagues recently published. So I just want you to go maybe through the significance of why it's so important for there to be a review of what's out there in the literature, and then maybe some of the preliminary findings or the themes that were emerging from that piece. Absolutely. So this article is one that I worked on with a group of colleagues from the Household Water Insecurity Experiences Research Coordination Network. And this is a group of scholars who have dedicated their time and research towards the study of water insecurity in, in all of its forms. And... The article in question itself is, is an actual systematic review of the literature on children's water insecurity, broadly speaking. So that article is actually entitled The Effects of Household Water Insecurity on Child Health and Well-Being. You can find that in Wires Water, and it just was published this June, I believe. Yes, it was published in June. So we are very excited that that came out very recently. And really, the reason why it's so important is that there was no... There was no sort of systematic summary of the impacts of water insecurity on child health and well-being. It's sort of like food insecurity in many respects in that it's a very understudied area. There is more literature on children's food insecurity and its impacts, and there's far less on children's water insecurity. So 
part of the issue was that when I started conceptualizing my own research on water insecurity, and we'll get into that later, is that you really have to, you have to look for this information. There are a number of statistics that the UN publishes. There's a lot of antidotal information from from research with adults or from sort of popular media about the impacts on children's water insecurity, but there's not a lot of primary research done with children and water insecurity. Most of the research is definitely tended to be focused on the adult perspective and when children are involved, it's either they are older children, so generally speaking, 14 and upward, 16 and upward. Sometimes when they're 16 and upward, they're being considered adults within their context. So not only is there very little research on children's water insecurity that needed to be summarized, there's also, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't coalesced in one area. And so it was very dispersed. So really the significance of this article was combing through every piece of relevant literature, finding every little detail about, okay, what, how can water insecurity potentially impact child, child health and well-being, and then identifying what is known and what is unknown. So that's why this article is so important. It's really the first article of its kind. We haven't found another review article on children's water insecurity in the first place. So we were very excited that this article came together and it was a huge effort from just an enormous group of, of researchers that were working with me. And yeah, it's very exciting. And we, we break it down to the different aspects of what the literature says, how water insecurity impacts child health and well-being. Would you be able to just summarize some of the, the major themes of it for our listeners? Absolutely. So, yeah. So if we really think about the ways in which water insecurity might impact child health and well-being, some obvious ones first come to mind. There's obviously growth and development. Or not obviously, but that's probably one of the more well-known aspects of water insecurity, growth, development, and then waterborne disease. So in terms of growth and development, you have the potential for malnutrition because if you don't have adequate or safe water, it often impacts the food that can be consumed, uh, mostly because water is necessary to prepare most, most even the basic foods across cultures. And if you don't have the water to prepare it, then you're obviously going to eat something that is possibly less nutritious less culturally desirable, but also if you have to, if you use necessitated water that's contaminated, there's also a very good chance that you could be, you could be ingesting pathogens or something that will make you ill, toxins. So there's a lot of chance for malnutrition to occur because people either can't eat food or they eat food that is not, 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 not nutritious for them. Jumping off that, then you've also got hydration. If you don't have enough water to stay hydrated, Hydration has a myriad effects on the child body. And most of that goes towards, you know, it can lead to stunting. It can lead to impaired cognitive function. You know, a lot of that comes out in focus as well. When children can't necessarily focus on schoolwork, it's because without sufficient water, they're just not able to focus, right? They're kind of in a daze all of the time. So nutrition and dehydration are two very big ones. Stunting in terms of growth, which is sort of a combination of those two. And then certainly if we think about, and I mentioned this a little bit already, anytime water is contaminated, there's a very high, there's a good, there's a good opportunity for the transmission of all kinds of waterborne pathogens, which range from acute to chronic infectious disease. And, and that will vary from environment to environment as to what can be transmitted. But those are one of the major issues with water insecurity is the transmission of disease. And then of, while children are still developing their immune system, and if it's compromised from either malnutrition, insufficient water, and then perhaps a myriad of other environmental conditions, you're really vulnerable at that point to suffer the effects of disease. Mostly, this takes the form of diarrheal disease, which then also dehydrates children and causes all sorts of problems when children can't maintain sanitation, particularly in environments where access 
to a flush toilet, any sort of pit toilet, any sort of basic infrastructure for defecation isn't available because then there's also the potential for the contamination of other water supplies, children having to go outside the home, which can be dangerous in its own right. You know, one of the things that I'd really want to emphasize when we talk about children's water insecurity is that a lot of these effects, they're so interconnected. And when you start talking about one, you really can't stop talking about all the others that come with it then. And it's also very important to remember that water insecurity is connected with a myriad of other insecurities. It's usually not just water insecurity in the environment to begin with. It usually is coexisting with things like food insecurity, with things like just normal environmental security, you know, the safety of an environment, all kinds of things. So these effects are really interrelated, really interconnected. And then, you know, some other effects to really think about, too, with water insecurity that don't get near, not the same amount of attention with children, but get a lot more attention with adults, is the, is the opportunity for emotional distress, sort of the, so, the negative social effects that come with water insecurity. A very big fo- emphasis in the research right now on water insecurity, mostly with adults, is going to be the emotional distress, the emotions that are associated with household water insecurity. With children, there's very, very little research on that. There might be one or two papers that have really actually gotten into some what emotions are associated with water insecurity. But if you look antidotally through the other research on WASH, so water sanitation and hygiene, that sort of, that broad, very related literature, there are a number of ways that, you know, children can be emotionally upset by not having access to water, not feeling like they can keep themselves clean. There's anger. You can feel upset for being dehydrated. Depending on the situation, you know, in some contexts, if children are responsible for gathering and collecting water, then you have situations where if children don't return home in time with that water, they can be in trouble with their parents because that stress is coming from the household of not having water that's not being able to prepare for food, being able to do other chores. And so really, there are that the emotional effects are, are not as well documented with children, but we know they exist. So it's really important that we focus on what are the actual experiences children have in water insecurity, particularly as it relates to emotional distress, and how do they manifest? Where are these opportunities for this, for this stress coming from, basically? But on the flip side, I do want to point out that in some of these cases, it's it's very easy to, to look at only the negative emotions that are associated with water insecurity. And it's not to diminish their effect at all and the importance of them. But in some cases, there's research where children are talking about they collect water for the home and it makes them feel good about themselves. If they go out to collect it, they feel strong. They feel like they're providing for the family. They feel like they're doing something that's important or they they create sort of opportunities for themselves to go out and socialize and play and all kinds of things. Now that in itself has, again, another flip side where that means there's opportunities for violence, accidents and injuries. And what can be play at water or waiting for water can often evolve into tense situations between children themselves as they fight or they argue over who has access to what water or who is in queue for water. And so again, it's one of those situations where when we talk about the effects of water insecurity, there are many negative effects and they need to be addressed. And you cannot diminish the importance by saying, well, but it's not all of, you know, not everything that happens is necessarily a negative consequence. But it's just so important to realize like we don't stigmatize the entire situation when we speak about water insecurity because humans and particularly children find just ways to live their life no matter what the conditions are. So I think that's a very important element to emphasize, not only when we talk about water insecurity, but also something we try to emphasize within the article itself. And if we want to go into a few other elements of the article, you know, one of the big sections I focused on was how water insecurity impacts play, because one of the two things that does come up a lot for children is school. So, and 
children don't often get to go to school in water insecure conditions, either because it's mostly in conditions where they have to they have to spend time collecting water for the home or then staying home to help clean, to to actually help support the family with tasks that involve water. Or it can create situations where children are unable to play because they have to, again, spend their spending time collecting water or they're spending time managing the water of the household or the water itself is is a risk. And so parents don't let their children play outside. They don't let their children play in the water because either it poses a risk for contamination to the child themselves or for the child to potentially contaminate a water source. So there's a lot of effects just outside the immediate biological effects like diarrheal disease that we often think about that are really important to then summarize, talk about, put it out there and really put out as future directions where a lot more research needs to be done. And that was really one of the main points of the article that we focused on very heavily. Just like the next steps or the next directions for future work in, in the area or like what are the places where more needs to be done almost? Is that kind of- Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and the problem really becomes that there is such little, there's so little research that it's, there's just such an immense need. We know these problems exist. We've known they exist for decades since we started doing, since water insecurity became a concept and people started, you know, UNICEF started publishing all of their annual reports. You know, you know, all of these reports started coming out about the impacts of water insecurity, but systematic research is, is very little. So the next steps are really not only replication of current research, but just the exploration of many avenues of research. And I think a lot of it also is, looking at intersections because water insecurity is simply just, it never doesn't exist in a vacuum. So not only looking at water insecurity with children, but how do all the other insecurities intersect to impact children at the same time? So food, water, energy are the major ones. Great. So can we move into talking about your specific field site in Belém in Brazil, wondering about your methods and some of those preliminary findings kind of in the same area that you're talking about around children's water insecurity? Absolutely. So, you know, this research, this opportunity to write this article was really born out of me beginning down a path of looking at children's water insecurity. And my own doctoral research looks at how children experience perceived household water insecurity in the city of, as you said, Belém para Brazil, which is in the north of the country. And Belém is a, is a large metropolitan city. It's very well known for having problems with water and sanitation and sort of disorganized urban growth over the years. So it has a lot of inequality, it has a very high income population and very low income population. And the provision of water sanitation infrastructure varies quite a bit. Uh, and unsurprisingly, it varies the most between the high and low income areas. So my research was really then to go to go look at how water insecurity might manifest itself in this area. And not only that, but really how it manifests, how do children experience and perceive this? And there are two really unique pieces to the research. One that is using children, we're the, the age range of children that are participating were from five to 10. So it is a, it's a very, it's a nice range of, of child age that is not covered in the literature every, anywhere very much. So really we can look at, well, how do younger children's experiences necessarily compare with older children's experiences. Um, at the same time, we're also, we also interviewed families, the mothers of the children themselves. So one of the things that's really important is we can compare child and caregiver experiences of household water insecurity. And that's something that has been done in food insecurity. And one of the big things that comes up is often child experiences differ significantly from adult experiences. And part of the issue is that many times 
it's been assumed that uh, the adult experience, you know, will reflect the child experience. So if an adult tells you what water insecurity is like in the home, then that must apply for the child. It's expected that won't be the same. I've seen a lot of evidence that suggests something similar as well. And it's certainly been documented in food insecurity. So we know that we can't always rely on the adult perspective because children experience and perceive things in their own ways and they have their own lives. So that was another really important part of the research is not only documenting the child perspective as they see it, getting this great age range of children, particularly when they're younger to older, to look at how the needs of water change with children, how those experiences change, but then also being able to compare and contrast what their caregivers experience versus what the children are experiencing. And the other really important part of this research is that we used a visual technique. We used the draw, write, and tell technique to engage with children first, give them an opportunity to express how they thought about water in their everyday lives, not just necessarily through a straight interview, but through another medium that wasn't dependent on verbal communication. And so in this case, it was drawings with papers and crayons. And so I had about 24 children and their mothers participate in this research. It was carried out over nine months while I was in Brazil. And um, it, was, it was honestly a fantastic experience. It was a lot of fun to uh, really work with the children and talk with the parents. But generally, we took this, this research was carried out in the low-income neighborhoods where we very much know that there's documented problems with water sanitation and hygiene. And so if we just go into the methods a little bit, we did a, re- a purposeful sample. We recruited these 24 children and their families. We did, we collected basic demographic and infrastructure data on the home, particularly focusing on what water resources they had available to them. Water insecurity, because there are no child measures of water insecurity right now. So water insecurity was then objectively documented using the household water insecurity experience scale, which is a household measure. And it's applied to the adults. So the mothers gave us a, an assessment of the household water insecurity. And then we had a series of interviews that we would then carry out with the, the household over the next, however many times it took us to schedule the interviews, because we had to come back and do it a few times. But usually what we'd start with doing is we'd start doing the drawing activity with the child first. And we would just do that to sort of introduce the research, sort of what we were doing, build that rapport so it wasn't a strain. And I did that with a very good colleague of mine, Mariana Inglis, who's a doctoral candidate at the University of Sao Paulo. She worked with me for six months to help me conduct these interviews. And she was just instrumental because she's an amazing, she's an amazing biological anthropologist. And so you should definitely go check out her work as well. But she and I would sit down with the child. We would give them the, the crayons and the paper. And we just simply asked them, okay, well, draw us something draw us an activity you do with water every day, or draw us something with water that you think is very important. And then the children would draw for a little bit. And then we just have a very relaxed, informal conversation about that and begin talking with children, seeing really how do they experience and think about uh, the water in their everyday lives. And then if we had time, what we would normally do is we would do the interview with mom then. So we'd had a much larger, not much larger, but a, a more conversational, semi-structured interview that was grounded in eco-cultural theory, which really looks at how routines and activities shape child health and well-being, really how they really shape, they're sort of fundamental to shaping child growth and development, particularly as an adult and a child. And so we would do that with the mom. And then we would try to do that again later with the child. And so we would try to, we attempted to start doing it in three separate visits. And we very quickly found out we needed to do that in maybe two so that we had time to had time to collect all the data and not keep imposing on the families who were so very graciously giving us their time. But those were really our main techniques. We had the drawing activity. We had the two interviews then that served as the main data collection, as well as uh, the household water security scores, and then all of our demographic and infrastructure data that we collected. 
Awesome. Thank you. So in doing the research, was the desire to, to look at different neighborhoods or was the desire to just kind of get a sense of what was happening in maybe one or two particular places in the city? So we focused on two particular neighborhoods that would have are known and well-documented to have issues with water and sanitation. And these neighborhoods are very large, actually. So it covers quite a bit of area. And the, the borders, the frontiers between the neighborhoods are pretty undefined. So they're, well, they're, they are defined. Like people know when you're in one neighborhood versus when you're in another. But then you get these sort of in-between areas where people will say, oh, this is... This is this neighborhood. This is the other neighborhood. And then we had some that sort of were on the fringes of these neighborhoods that technically were a different neighborhood altogether, but were still sort of within that same area, the same sort of environmental conditions. So it wasn't necessarily to compare and contrast neighborhoods as they very much were all suffering from the same lack of infrastructure, lack of support and sort of the same neglect that sort of created these environmental conditions. So really, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't about comparing two, envi- two neighborhoods that were different. It was really just that spread of these pulling, fr- pulling households from these known areas that have issues with water and sanitation. And just to clarify those environmental conditions, I know I've, I've, I've talked with you a little bit about this before, like the, the flooding and then access to like sewer systems, things like that. Is that really kind of the emphasis on where the water and security is coming from? Or is it even just access to like getting the water like we've talked like you've been talking about before that children need to go out and collect it from maybe a, a centralized location or something along those lines. So in this case actually because Belen is in the Amazon and it's one it's one of the most water abundant environments in the world there are canals that run through the city with borders a large bays I mean it sits right at the mouth of the Amazon and actually interestingly enough a lot of these households do have municipal piped water directly into the home. So this is not a situation where children are going out and collecting water. So that's another really important element of this research is that we're doing it in a water abundant environment and we're really trying to expand that, that the, the conceptualization of water insecurity beyond water scarcity, which has just been the major focus for the last so many years of uh, water insecurity research. Water scarce environments where of course, there's gonna be water insecurity, but it exists in these water abundant environments well, even when you have piped water. So children actually, in this situation, we're not going out and collecting water for any reason. But the pipes were very old. They were not well-maintained. Water interruptions to services were very common. They can last a day. They can last a couple of days. They can happen once a week. They can happen once a month. They can happen more frequently, right? So it changes it, the variation of which these interruptions to water services happen are is pretty significant, but they, they're pretty constant throughout these neighborhoods. Now, the flooding certainly did actually used to be a very large issues in these communities. And that's a problem because there's not a lot of regular trash collections. So you would have flooding from the canals. A lot of trash is dumped outside. It mounds up in the streets. It gets into the canals. So you have a lot of potential for contamination as well. And a lot of the literature on Belen before this had really focused on the flooding. But interestingly enough, when I was there, the flooding was not really the issue anymore that, you know, many residents would tell me, oh, that used to be a problem like five years ago, which would make sense because that's when the research I was reading had been published, but now not so much. So there's always the potential for it, but the actual flooding into the homes, which was the main concern for some of the contamination did not seem to be as quite a significant issue in these neighborhoods. It still happened actually when I was there. There was some very severe flooding in many of the very high income neighborhoods where the cars were getting washed away. And you would see people, you know, buses would drive through a foot and a half of water and people were, um, you know, trying to struggle to get through the, the rivers and the roads, basically. But 
it was not as it was not perceived as much of an issue that had as perhaps originally conceived. And but the environment is certainly a big issue in that sense is that it's it's not a very clean environment. We know there's a lot of risk for transmission of disease in that area. And we certainly know there's a huge problem with human human waste being dumped into canals, regular waste being dumped in the canals. Uh, so it's not a it's not inherently a clean environment in many parts of these neighborhoods. Is there anything else you wanted to mention about the research? Yeah, I mean, what you know, I so we are still working through the data. I'm still doing my analysis. I just got back in August with it. But one of the things I can say, one of the things I really want to emphasize about the research is that, yes, you can do research on water insecurity with children. And that might seem like trivial, particularly because I'm here talking about research with children. But there is a very, I can't tell you how many times I've had people ask me, well, how are you going to ask them questions? Or, oh, can you can, do they have enough attention span to talk to you about that? And the answer is absolutely yes. I mean, there's a large body where, you know, scholars do research with children all the time. And there is some, and there's a body of it that's been done with uh, in food insecurity with children. But there's still quite a heavy perception and a hesitance, I believe, to actually do research with children. Either whether I think some researchers are kind of intimidated by the idea of talking to children or, or that same sort of idea that they can't or won't understand what you're saying or know how to explain. What I can tell, say, with great confidence is that, no, the children were very, very aware of the water in their lives. I mean, they grew up with it. They understand the situation. And so it was a little bit more difficult when they're five, because when you're five and you're speaking with someone from another country for the first time, my Portuguese to them sounds a little strange. It can be a little, they can be shy. They don't always want to talk. And sometimes, you know, that that nonverbal communication really becomes a factor where children they would rather sort of communicate in gestures or with the drawings than just straight talking to you. So the younger they were, the more the harder it was to necessarily communicate directly with them via an interview. But I certainly, as they got older, seven, eight, nine, and ten, children had no talk, talking and engaging with us in the research, talking in the interviews, and they were very aware of their water situation. You know, one of the things that often they focused on, and I think one of the things that's really interesting in this research is that. There wasn't a lot of expressed distress from the children. And I know that's a huge part of looking at food, water insecurity, and energy insecurity is looking for the distress that people experience, particularly with children. It's assumed that it causes all this distress. And in this case, children were aware of it. They didn't like it all the time. There were some, they, the, I, it could be an inconvenience. It could be, and in some cases, yeah, it, it bothered them. But in terms of like serious emotional distress, I wouldn't say that they expressed a lot of that. Children were just, it was part of their daily routine. It was part of their life. So they they worked around it. And I also think our families went to a, a great lengths to always make sure that they had clean drinking water or water in reserve for the times when water was shut off or when it, they were afraid the water wasn't clean. So I think that was something that really stood out to me uh, and something I tried very to be very careful of is not to create distress where it's not simply to fill a gap in the literature and children didn't really seem to express that. Now, one of the things that children really did like expressing though, they did like to, so play, and this is something we cover in the research, in the review article as well, that's something that's coming out in my research is that play was such an important thing for them. So the opportunity to play in the water, whether that was playing outside, playing in pools, playing in the river. So the natural environment, being able to swim in the water was very important to them. Or if it was playing in, in the house with water, like playing with siblings in the shower, or, you know, some of them, a lot of these households had what's called caja de agua. So water boxes, basically, right? Water tanks on top of homes that store water. And that's, you know, it has to be refilled, but that supplies water to the home. And some children, you know, they would, uh, as like a special sort of treat when it was hot, 
parents would pull down these caja de aguas or they'd have an extra one and they filled up and it'd become like a little swimming pool for the children or something. And so play was really this very fun thing to see come out in in the in the research because it's something that's touched on here and there in the literature and particularly in some of the UNICEF and UN documents how children don't have the opportunity to play and so it was really exciting to see well okay well now how is this coming out in the research and you know the other thing I'll say for sure is that when we think about doing research with children these visual methods and they're not inherently visual methods aren't inherently only for children they can be done with any age range and they're appropriate but I will say the drawing activities went over fantastically. Children were super excited that they got to draw with these crayons and the paper. And of course, they got to keep the crayons and paper when they were done. And I always brought extra because sometimes we would come to one visit and then we'd come back for a second visit and the child had filled up their drawing book with sometimes more drawings about water and they'd come and they'd show us or parents would send us photos of the, the drawings that they were doing. And sometimes they would just draw with it and they would they would just be so excited. And we actually continued to do the drawings throughout our main interviews with the children simply because they, it was just, it didn't distract them. They really just enjoyed it. It made them feel relaxed. And I think it worked wonderfully with the water because we had, I mean, we had a number of drawings of on activities with water and some very creative drawings with activities on water. So I think that, you know, if there are those listening out there and they're thinking about well, how do you do research with children, you're thinking about investigating something very similar, whether it's another insecurity or another issue altogether. I can say, you know, drawings worked well for us. And this was also reinforced by the fact that in many of the households we got there, and I wasn't sure if this would be the case, whether would the children like the crayons as much as I hoped they would? Would they have preferred something else? There was crayon all over the walls in many of these homes. So we lucked out in that sense too. So methodologically, I think that was a great approach. And then certainly, yes, children were very aware of their situation. They could very much communicate how they felt. They impact, Water impacted their daily routines. Play became a big thing. And, you know, for us, it was very interesting. This We're still kind of going through this. They were usually pretty certain about the water in their homes, mostly because they knew what the situation was do their parents and you know the parents were always very cautious about what water got used for cooking cleaning for bathing all of that where children maybe expressed the most concern about water was actually uh, at schools there always seemed to be more uncertainty of where the water came from if it was clean if they had enough water oftentimes children had to bring water bottles with them to school you know and it, so it was really interesting to see then where children were finding these concerns with water. And for them, it was definitely in that more of that school environment. So that's a really exciting part of the, the research that we're, we're going through now. And I'm really excited to write about later. Awesome. Thank you. So I wanted to pivot and talk a little bit about the uh, United Nations conference you attended in New York. So that was the first UN conference on water in nearly 50 years that that was the, the central focus. Could you just talk a little bit about what the experience was like and, and maybe how it relates to this broader work on water and security in your specific research? Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, it's it's incredibly relevant. I mean, we were sending that we were the UN was setting the the next agenda for if and how we're going to reach uh, sustainable development goal six, and so I mean that inherently includes water and security, and particularly water for children. That event in and of itself was so many things. It was it was a pretty credible experience to actually be in the UN and to be on the floor to listen to these dialogues going on. I should explain that. So, I was I applied to attend at as a specially accredited member of the academic community. And this is one of the rare instances where the UN invited 
outside members that aren't necessarily affiliated with the United Nations or government entity to come as attending and attend as participants. So in some ways, it functioned much like a, a conference, like an academic conference or a professional conference, as much it was, as it was functioning as a very high-level UN meeting. And clearly, I, I, there were several numbers that got thrown out about how many people attended that. And there was something to, along the lines of 10,000. I can't say for sure, but I can say the UN was never designed for the amount of people that participated, which was which is fascinating because there was clearly so much support and so many organizations that were out there working to address water in a myriad of ways, whether that's through technology, whether that's through the sort of the same research I'm doing with individuals, or whether it's through uh, policy and advocacy. So it was it was a really phenomenal experience, but it's very interesting because you know also you get to see firsthand how the UN works and functions, what these dialogues are like, and many of these dialogues actually are, I believe, they're still online. They were streamed so that people could watch and participate from afar. But clearly, the UN right now is taking a stance where they are putting the onus on the member states to address water within their own country and to address SD6 within their own country. But a lot of the member states from the dialogues that I attended are very adamant that they don't have the resources, that they need support from the international community, they need greater support from the United Nations. And so it sort of it sort of leaves an uncertain perspective of where we are in terms of reaching many of the sustainable development goals. But certainly with SDG 6, I think we are we're several years behind where we need to be to meet it by 2030. So as, as amazing of an opportunity it was, it was very sobering and very sort of uh, concerning as well. So there, and, you know, the other really amazing thing about that was it wasn't just the events that were taking place in the UN, there were events all across the city, a lot of private events taking place, a lot of organizations getting together and bringing various groups of people together to discuss certain projects that are being taken on in both the United States and abroad as well as providing platforms to really promote their organizations and work and network, which I thought was an amazing opportunity to really not only talk to people about my own research and to really get out there, but to also start interfacing with more organizations that are really working to address water insecurity in their own ways. Uh, and I will say probably the theme of that is that there are a lot of, there's a big push for technology solutions right now, which are great and I admire them a lot. However, there, there are limitations to technology solutions, and so they need to be implemented with great care to the environmental and the human conditions that people are trying to address. Because there are very simple technology solutions like drilling wells or providing boreholes or even standpipes. They do provide water. There's no doubt about that. But in many cases, they also create a, a number of situations like a well is not always appropriate for children. Because it can be dangerous depending on how that well is made, how they have to collect water. Too many boreholes means you can lower the water table. A standpipe, if it's only one, you have a limited supply of water. It can create these huge lines, opportunities for tension, opportunities for children to get into trouble, to you know, engage in these situations where adults are unkind, other children are unkind to them, where there's stress over the water. Sometimes they get controlled, they get taken over, and then an individual is controlling that standpipe. And so that can create all kinds of issues with abuse of power, whether uh, and gender discrimination, terrible things, really. But the other issue is that a lot of these big technology solutions, there's a lot of questions of support, right? There's a lot of questions of continued support, where and how they get implemented, how long it's going to take for these things to be implemented. And there's such a great need across the entire world that a lot of these are very expensive technology solutions. So inevitably, I'm I'm inevitably I'm concerned that their their reach will be limited because they're just expensive and they cannot be implemented widely. 
Right. And it strikes me that in our, in our time of AI and tech that, that it's facilitating like a catch all or like a fix all like, Oh, if we institute the tech, then it'll be fine. But as you're mentioning, and of course, you know, from your research, it's very context dependent and what works in one place might not work in another. Right. Absolutely. And the other thing is, you know, when you have the resources, like let's just take a regular, when you have piped water into the house and you have access to bottled, whatever water, generally speaking, you have the ability to adapt to whatever your needs are. But that's not always the case, right? Every, every man, women, and children, anybody, our water needs are all very different. And so just provision alone isn't necessarily enough, particularly when it is very basic provision. That doesn't always mean you have enough water to, uh, for sanitation and hygiene, particularly for women, particularly for young children, because they consume a lot of water as you need to keep clean and bathe them. And everyone's water needs changes as they get older. So it really needs to be very comprehensive provision. And the idea that this one fits all solution that does work well, if you have the ability to adapt to your situation with very little, very little hassle, basically, when you have the resources to exist where water, you know, is rarely provided, it's well, it's very well clean, showers, bathing, all of that's fine. But in a lot of contexts, simple provision is really not enough, and it's not appropriate. And it creates these situations then where it puts people at risk, whether it's because you have to go out to water at night, whether it's because it's not really appropriate for the gender roles and dynamics of the situation, because it's not appropriate for age. Provision is is good, but it is, it's not everything. It's far, far from everything. So it needs to be a provision with the thought of, is this enough for a single, is this enough for a household of anyone who can live in that household? Because we all experience and use water differently. Awesome. Thank you. So uh, I just want to conclude here with allowing you to kind of plug anything else you would want our listeners to know about you or your research or your teaching, anything along those lines. Well, so keep a lookout. I am working on my research. So hopefully we'll begin publishing that very soon. And I, you know, I'm very excited. I have, if anyone's going to be at the American Association Geographers meeting in uh, Honolulu in 2024, I will be there presenting a poster on some of our research. Certainly, if you want to keep up with me, I am on Instagram under at Ethnographer's Collection, where I post photography, but I also post the writings that I work on very constantly. I am a regular writer for Synopsis, a health humanities journal. And that's where I, I, I write about a, a lot of different things. That's actually where one of the first pieces I ever wrote on water insecurity that sort of started a that very long cascade of me going to the UN and writing this original research article or this review article began. So you can definitely find me there. You can also always find me. My contact information is on the department's website, the Department of Anthropology's website. And I would encourage everyone to reach out if they have questions or they have ideas, concerns, whatever it may be. I'm, so, I'm totally available for any of that. Awesome. Thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. No, thank you.